So we are now just uh, one week or seven sleeps away from Christmas. Now, over the last several years, we've been making the argument that while it is fun, it is enjoyable to celebrate Christmas. It's the day we observe the birth of Christ. It is unlikely that Jesus was born on December 25th. Uh, it's unlikely he was born in December at all, but it's, it's possible. Uh, and, and so we have no doctrinal, philosophical, moral issues with observing and celebrating, rejoicing in the birth of Christ. Although within the Christian family, there are some who might shake their pointy, pious fingers at those who choose to celebrate Christmas. It's pagan, after all. There are others who might declare that it is an absolute grace, a disgrace and borderline blasphemy to not have a church service on the day Jesus was born, which he wasn't. Uh, and so we just find this to be a bit legalistic on both ends of the spectrum. Um, for our culture at large, it is true that Christmas has become more of a commercial rather than a spiritual event. Uh, and the Jesus part often gets lost in the shuffle. And I think that's true for believers as well. We get caught up in all the excitement and hysteria as well. Uh, you know, amidst the sea of twirly twinkle lights and, and decorations and trees and wrapping paper, the gifts we give and receive, keeping Jesus front and center of our life can be challenging. And not just at Christmas time, any other time. Somewhat ironically, I think, we live in a culture that seems to love celebrating Christmas while hating the Christ that celebrates. So being a faithful follower of Christ is not without its difficulties. We are called to take up our cross and follow him, even during the holidays, even when celebrating his birth. So since it's Christmas time, we're going to take a break from, from 1 Peter today, kind of, uh, and we're going to look at an aspect of Jesus' birth narrative, but in a way that highlights and reinforces some of the big ideas we have been seeing in 1 Peter. For example, we've been talking about uh, 1 Peter says that there is joy, or there should be joy, through suffering. Um, that we're going to be tested as though by fire, and we're called to rejoice. We are called to a life of obedience through hardship. And we're told that a believer's lifestyle should be marked and, and set apart by do-goodery, by, by doing good. And that, that will reveal itself in the culture at large. So with these ideas as our backdrop, we're going to look at the life of Joseph, at least what we know of it. Um, Joseph, husband to Mary and father of, of sorts, you know, to Jesus. Um, and we're going to kind of look at it through this first Peter lens. Um, and just a, a couple of quick highlights from from Peter here. This is kind of the, the thesis of this whole book. He says, in this you rejoice. And by this he's referring to, he's just talked about our salvation uh, and, and our eternal inheritance. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter calls us to rejoice in spite of our circumstances because we've been given this living hope. We've been given salvation. And, and that hope 
that living eternal hope is so significant, it's so amazing, it's so eternal, that we can and should rejoice in it. And that's an ongoing, rejoice without ceasing kind of idea. So no matter what's happening around us right now, no matter how we may be suffering today, no matter how we may be tested whenever, we should rejoice. This is a hard thing to think about. We all have some personal feeling about this. Even now, you may be thinking about your own current sufferings or, or difficulties or your own trials. And, and maybe you're even thinking about how well or maybe how not well you've handled them in regards to rejoicing. Even if we're less than joyful at the current moment in this trial, whatever, wherever we find ourselves, this says we can and should find our way back to joy. Joy for the living hope that's been given to us. And joy leads to trust and obedience. And we see this on display in the life of Joseph. Now, at the time we're introduced to Joseph, his life circumstances are far from ideal. His call to obedience, as we will see, was, was fraught at every step. But what we see is, in spite of all his various trials, he lived by faith and he obeyed when he was called. So let's look at Matthew. Matthew 1, starting in verse 19. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So I really found this interesting working through this, because we've all heard this story a million times, right? But we've never probably spent time really thinking through the details of this, and that's, that's what we're going to focus on this morning. So here's the backstory behind this. According to Jewish custom at the time, marriage was a two-step process. Similar to our engagement and wedding ceremony, but, but quite a bit different. The first step was what they referred to as betrothal. It was a legal transaction. A man agreed to marry a woman. He committed to her. An agreement was struck, either between the two of them or their families, likely, or some combination of the two. There could have been a financial payment involved. They paid a, a bride price. They, they paid for the right to marry the woman. And there was probably, a, some, in some cases, a legally binding contract. Now, once the marriage terms had been agreed to, that was step one. In ancient tradition, up to a year might pass, a year between step one and step two. And during that time, the expectation for the groom was that he was going to prepare himself for what lays ahead. He was going to study the Torah, for example in the Jewish community. He was, he was going to know more about the Word of God. He was going to prepare himself physically and emotionally and financially to be a husband and, and a father. So they spent this year physically apart, even though they were considered to be legally or technically married. And they weren't allowed to physically consummate the marriage until step two, when they actually moved in together under one roof. So two steps up to one year apart. So in Matthew 1 here, what we're seeing is, is Mary and Joseph, in this unusual by today's standard, but customary at the time, this unique time period between step 1 and step 2. They were betrothed. They were considered legally wed. But it was before they had come together in step 2. The union had not yet been physically consummated, and in this period of time, Mary was found to be with child. Now, I, I suspect this over time becomes increasingly difficult for us to feel the weight of this in our day and age. Um, 
in our culture, it's, it's not uncommon to have sex before marriage, to have children outside of marriage, uh, even couples that, that have multiple kids over years of time and never get married. It's, it's, just, it's just common. It was not common then. In fact, in fact part of the reason that the, for this year wait was to prove the innocence of the bride-to-be. The parents of the groom who'd paid this bride price, they wanted to be sure that she was pure. She was ready. She was a, a good fit for their son. And legally, if the bride ended up pregnant during this time, she had broken the contract. She would be found to be illegal and immoral. And she could be stoned to death. That context is important to understanding this story. Again, this is difficult in our age, but I don't think it's impossible for us to understand the, 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 um, the impact that Mary's pregnancy might have had on Joseph. The love of his life, technically already his wife, is now revealed to be pregnant, and he really doesn't understand all he's told about this situation. I mean, she's made pregnant by the Holy Spirit. What does that even mean? We struggle with the concept of the Trinity now, after 2,000 years of scholarship. I'm not even sure it was a thing then. All Joseph knows for sure is he's not the daddy. So what should he do? How should he handle this? He's probably a little embarrassed. He's humiliated. He's been cheated on, it would seem. Although she claims the pregnancy came from the Holy Spirit, so now he finds out that the woman he's betrothed to has probably been cheating, and she might be crazy. It's just too much to bear. What is he to do? I mean, according to the text, he's just, you know, kind of a simple, average man. He's probably a little older than Mary. That was customary at the time. He was a carpenter, we know. He'd been building up his business, building up his reputation. The text describes him as a just man, a reasonable man. Apparently he's kind-hearted because he didn't want Mary to be put to shame. And he certainly didn't want her stoned to death. And so I think he decided, probably a little brokenheartedly, to quietly divorce her. So Joseph all of a sudden finds himself dealing with this life-altering situation where every circumstance of this was out of his control. I mean, apart from choosing to fall for and, and wed Mary, everything else is completely out of his hands, except for his response. He had been hurt. He'd been wounded. He'd personally betrayed, publicly embarrassed, scandalized even. Today, we might call him the victim. He was the victim in this. And yet he chose not to lash out in return. He chose to divorce her quietly. So he chose not to publicly castigate the woman who had wounded and betrayed him. He chose not to feed the gossip mill and, and spread rumors and accusations. He was and he remained a kind and just man. He controlled his emotions. He chose not to hurt her even though she had hurt him, so he thought. But even as he chose to quietly divorce her, we, we get the sense that this just wasn't an easy decision for him to make. He didn't react in anger or become punitive. He wrestled with it. It says he had to resolve himself to the idea. He wrestled with it. 
And he finally landed on the right thing to do was just to quietly divorce her. He finally got to that point. I need to quietly divorce her. The story continues. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So I don't want to read in anything into the text here, something that's not there, but I do find the timing of this really curious. Verse 19, Joseph the just man, Joseph was unwilling to shame Mary. He decided to quietly divorce her. He's just, he's just going to end things quietly and not make a big deal. He'd come to finally this rational, rational, reasonable, justifiable decision that was also kind-hearted and generous he had to resolve himself to get there. It wasn't an e- easy decision to make, but he made it. And then, and then the angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. It was, it was almost as though Joseph was being tested as to his response. Again, kind of reading between the lines here, but it's almost as though the Lord is waiting for Joseph to struggle through this process. To, to see where he was in a land. And, and not just his decision even, but to test his heart. To, to test the, the, the tenor and the tone of his decision. How he was going to handle this. So after Joseph had made this fairly even-tempered, as much as it could be, this decision balanced by kindness and mercy, then the angel of the Lord came to him in a dream. So if this was a test of Joseph's temperament or or his kind-heartedness, Joseph must have passed the test. Because the angel came with this encouraging message. You've done the right thing. Nope. I want you to change your mind. Well, if that last struggling was a test of faith. This is an even bigger test of faith. You know, how how Joseph's going to handle Mary's pregnancy, is he going to fly into a rage and and call for her death, which he could have done? Is he going to quietly divorce her, which he did, somewhere in between? He, He passed that test. Then comes the next test, and it's a bigger one. The angel says, you need to marry her anyway. I know what you've decided, but you need to marry her anyway. She hasn't cheated on you, essentially. This child is from the Holy Spirit. I understand this whole situation is awkward, but this is on God. It's not on Mary. She, she didn't call for this. She didn't ask for this. Marry her anyway. Now, at that time, in that culture, this is a big request. So even as Joseph has this, this angelic visit, it's all well and good for him to know that Mary was not, you know, cheating, cavorting around behind his back. It eased his troubled mind. Maybe she really was the girl he thought she was. The pregnancy was the result of the Holy Spirit, whatever that meant. That had to be a relief, at least in part. But she was still pregnant. And they still lived in a small town. And not everybody was going to have the benefit of an angelic visit 
explaining the nuances of Mary's pregnancy. For the townsfolk, it was going to appear as though Joseph and Mary had disgraced their families, disgraced themselves at best, or at worst, Mary was out doing something she shouldn't have been doing. So I think, again, trying to, trying to put this in kind of human terms, I, I think there had to be a moment or, or moments maybe of practicality for Joseph. If he fulfilled his marriage contract with Mary, how would this impact his name and his reputation? What impact might this have on his business? First century context, quite a bit different than it is right now. This is not a small request to be made of Joseph. He was being asked to put his name, his reputation, his business, his whole life on the line in a situation that he had nothing to do with. He's being asked to willingly and deliberately walk into a social and cultural firestorm. So, as acts of obedience, acts of suffering go, this is a pretty good one. Now, it's often true for us, I think, that when, when what we think of as suffering in our own life is oftentimes just consequences of our own choices. It's kind of the ripple effects of, of decisions or choices that we've made in the past. That, that's just the truth of it. You know, that, that little white lie we told sometime way back there continues to ripple throughout time and sooner or later just comes back to, to nip us on the hiney somehow. Or, or we're, we're rude to somebody in the parking lot. You know, and then we go inside, and they're the person manning the window at the DMV. We, we just find a way of complicating life sometimes. Or even worse, they come in and sit, next, sit in our pew at church on Sunday. You know, those, those awkward things. We often create, or contribute at least, to our own suffering. It's pretty unusual for us to be in a situation like this, where every aspect of Joseph's mental and emotional and psychological suffering seemed to be completely external to his choices external to decisions he had made. I mean, not unlike the story of Job. Right? In fact, Joseph's being asked now to step into increased difficulty. So you think back to that first Peter text we looked at. It started with rejoice. In this, you rejoice. And then what follows is not a list of exceptions to that joy. There is no list of exceptions there. We rejoice in our salvation, period. And the knowledge of our salvation can and should overshadow the suffering and the grief we experience through various trials. Not every moment of every day. We all get that. But on the whole, we come back to joy. Even when we're in the fire, we can still, and we are called to, believe in Jesus and rejoice with inexpressible joy because he saved us from our sins. And that's more than we deserve. And that's what Joseph is being called to except he was being called to believe in and celebrate the as-yet-undelivered promise of Jesus. We can look back at history and believe in a Jesus who existed. Joseph's being asked to believe in a Jesus that's not yet there. But he believed in him and believed what he would do. We have the benefit of knowing who Jesus was and knowing what he did do. Joseph acted on faith and trust. Now, being the cynic that I am, I seriously doubt that Joseph's immediate reaction was, yes, I get to live the rest of my life with people whispering about me and my family. 
assuming they know things about me that just aren't true. Woohoo! This will be fun. What a dream assignment. Thank you, Lord. I don't think that was his initial reaction. But I think he got to the point of rejoicing. Because even though he was told there was something special about this child, he he was told that he was going to be a a savior for his people, he was going to save people from their sins, I think maybe Joseph only understood some of what this meant. Uh, Maybe he only half heard what was being said. I mean, you'll notice in this verse that the, the, the quotes end before the prophecy part is explained. We're told that this prophecy was being fulfilled, but Joseph perhaps wasn't. I don't think he was given the full picture of what all this meant. That the birth of, chi- uh, the birth of this child was going to be a fulfillment of prophecy. I'm not sure he was clued into that. So he made up his mind to divorce. And then the word of the Lord came, delivered through an angel, and asked him to change his mind. So now, what's he going to do? When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So the word of the Lord that came through the angel was compelling. The angel revealed to Joseph God's will for him. And when it came right down to it, Joseph quickly obeyed. He changed his mind. When he woke up from that sleep, apparently... Nothing had to be resolved. He didn't have to work his way through anything. He just obeyed. Again, what we're seeing in 1 Peter, a life of faith is a life of obedience to the living, written word of God. In Joseph's case, it was obedience to the actual word of God delivered through an angel. He woke from his sleep, and he did as the angels commanded. So when the year was up, Joseph committed to take Mary into his house, and they would make this official, make official the second step of marriage and let the people talk. Let them say whatever they're going to say. So we don't know really how much time we're looking at here, what the time period is, but I, I kind of suspect that sometime in here, Joseph starts to you know, accept this new reality for him, and he thinks, okay, we, we have a game plan now. Uh, I'm starting to feel a little better about things. Uh, you know, the, the chatter will settle down sooner or later. Mary and I, we worked through some hard stuff. Eventually, the townsfolk would get used to the idea of Joseph and Mary and their, you know, their dirty little secret that wasn't really. And life would get back to something like normal. Maybe even business at the shop would, would pick back up. And, and at some point, Joseph probably thought, okay, whew, bullet dodged, crisis averted. Life goes on. I passed another test of faith. Hooray for me. It'll be smooth sailing from here on out. And I only say that, that that might have been Joseph's thought, because Joseph was a man. And men tend to think that way. Okay, boy, the Lord gave me a tough test, but I passed it. Now he's going to bless me abundantly, and it's all gravy from here on out. As though living the life of an exile only results in one or two tests. Well, we know that post-marriage, but prior to delivery, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. All the world had to be registered, had to be taxed. A census had to be taken in every town. So Joseph had to return to Bethlehem 
his ancestral hometown. And Joseph, along with his now very expectant wife, made the trip. It was probably around 90 miles or so. Now, while this in and of itself might not have been a real trial or a test, so to speak, in the grand scope of the pregnancy, traveling long distances with a very pregnant woman can be a trial unto itself. So this was not an easy thing for them to do. Not a lot of rest stops on the roadway. Um, but they made the trip. Now, just an aside here, because I think this is interesting. It came up last week, I think, or a week before, um, and Randy was in First Peter. You notice that Joseph here felt obligated to obey this decree from the then God-appointed leader. I'm pretty sure Joseph did not want to make this trip at this time for something as dumb as a census. I mean, really, how much difference can two or three people make? But we're called to obey the God-appointed authorities, even if it makes no sense. Really, even when it makes no sense. And in this case, we know that the Lord used this odd census request to fulfill prophecy. It's referred to in Matthew 2, 5, and 6. And the prophecy was that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And he was, because Joseph obeyed and went to follow this request. He obeyed and prophecy was fulfilled. Okay, they've made the trip. Again, Joseph thinks, okay, that, that, that really went okay. I mean, there's some lodging issues along the way, but we made the trip. We got a baby, a healthy baby, a healthy mama. Everything's good. On the eighth day, they, they took the baby to the temple. Um, they, they had him circumcised. And they officially named him Jesus as they were instructed to do. So, Mary's just had a baby, you know, they, 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 she's given birth and, and not quite ready for the big return trip to Nazareth, so they, they tarried a bit in Bethlehem. We don't really know why exactly. Maybe they decided to settle there, actually. Joseph, that's where he was from. He had family there that would avoid all the, the tongue-waggers, maybe, back in Nazareth. They could just stay in Bethlehem, and nobody knows the full story, maybe. I don't know. But sometime in here, unbeknownst to them, I think, angels had appeared to shepherds just outside of Bethlehem announcing the birth of Jesus. And they came looking for him. And then we know that the wise men had been informed farther away, and they came looking for the baby, and time passed. Like a, probably a year or more that Joseph and Mary stayed in Bethlehem. And at some point, they probably moved back into a normal kind of rhythm of life, as much as you can have a normal rhythm of life with a baby. But Joseph probably was working somewhere. He was, he was providing for his family. Maybe they decided to settle in, and so they were, they were doing their best to become part of the community. But then, when the wise men showed up, and Herod the king heard that the wise men came to his jurisdiction looking for the so-called Messiah, he determined to eliminate any chance of political upheaval by having all the male children under two killed. So this gives us a rough time frame for how long they had been in Bethlehem. Probably somewhere between six months to a year and a half, no more than two years. Not a long time to settle with a baby. So just as Joseph and Mary have kind of settled out a little bit, come to some kind of normal lifestyle, Joseph still feeling pretty good about having passed these previous tests, the other sandal falls. Along comes another test. 
Now when they, this is the wise men, when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. So here we go again. I think Joseph probably starts dreading sleep at some point. Another dream angel. Now, this is obviously a pretty serious warning. But I almost kind of have to wonder if Joseph really fully heard it in context, if he had to play it back over a couple of times. After all the upheaval and, and scandal and turmoil and travel, a period of relative peace and calm, I wonder if Joseph's filter caused him to initially hear, not your child's in danger and you have to go, but something more like, okay, Joseph, uh, you're getting a little too settled in Bethlehem. Life's a little too comfortable. I'm going to ask you to uproot everything and start all over again. We need to shake things up a bit. I kind of wonder if Joseph may have felt that, just, just for a moment. No, that's not what happened, of course. Uh, but I kind of think there was a moment where that's what he felt. I, I wonder if he thought, oh, come on, Lord, really? How does Herod even know who we are? How plausible is this threat, really? You are God, after all. Surely you can find another solution to this problem. We just unpacked. Now, I only suggest this as a possible thought process for Joseph because this is often our response when we are faced with choosing to follow God's revealed will for us. I think I hear you say this, but have you considered this? I, I hear you, Lord, but do you have a plan B? Is this like a multiple choice thing we get to choose? Is, is there an option that doesn't involve leaving everything we've built up again? An, an option maybe with a little less risk and, and some less stress. In fact, I can probably come up with an option or two because, you know, we think we can see things more clearly than an omniscient, almighty God creator. Or we might start negotiating. All right, I, I, I see what you want me to do, so how about this? If I do this for you, I'm going to get a little something-something on the back end. You know, th this is what I'm going to want later on. But that's not Joseph's response. Once again, Joseph obeyed the word of the Lord. In fact, it reads as though the dream ended, and he got up and packed. And they left. I mean, it says they, they left that night. It could, it could have been that night. You've heard the expression, delayed obedience is not really obedience at all. We've probably all said this to our kids at some point. So Joseph didn't mess around. They departed for Egypt by night, possibly that night. The border to Egypt is another 90 miles or so away, just to the border. We don't know how far into Egypt they went, but now they have a baby in tow, so it's three, four, five, six days of travel to get away from Herod. And whether or not Joseph knew this, and again, I don't think he did. I don't know that he would have cared if he did. As big an inconvenience as this was, we're told this was done to fulfill prophecy. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So we know the Lord is not just finding ways to mess with Joseph. He's not going out of his way to make Joseph's life harder. 
It was pur purposeful. And it was for Joseph and Mary's and Jesus' own good. It was done to fulfill prophecy about the birth of the Messiah. And, and, and this amazing to consider that this fulfillment of prophecy was in a sense contingent on the obedience of Joseph. To do what the Lord asked him to do. And Joseph once again passed this test of faith. And this made me think as I was going through it, does it ever occur to us when we are asked to do something for the Lord, when we're told, this is what I have for you right now, does it ever occur to us to think, I wonder if there's a bigger purpose behind this? Or do we just become fixated on our annoyance or the inconvenience of what we're being? The timing is horrible right now, Lord. Could we, could we find some other? How about spring? Could we put this off till spring? We, we find ways around it. And, and the truth is, I think we'd be happier, maybe not happy, we'd be, we'd be happier to obey if only, if only God gave us the bigger picture. Here's what's going to happen if you obey. But apparently we're on a need-to-know basis. And what we need to know is trust and obey. So Joseph obeyed, and he did it quickly. And we know they stayed in Egypt until Herod died. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Now there's some discussion as to how long this period of time was. Don't really know. Probably somewhere between maybe a few months in Egypt to no more than a year or so. We know that Herod died in 4 B.C. And just as, an, I think, an interesting historical aside, Herod died a horrible, terribly painful death. Now perhaps this was a case of the Lord's vengeance on the man who had killed children trying to put an end to the birth of Jesus. But it was so horrible, I won't even give you the details of Herod's death. It was a nasty, terrible death. But he died not long after he'd made this, this death edict. So Joseph has another dream from an angel of the Lord who told them that they could now safely return to Israel. And once again, Joseph obeys. They pack up their, what I'm thinking by now is like a, you know, one duffel and a backpack. I mean, you travel light after a while, right? They didn't have much. They, they pick up their stuff and they head back to Bethlehem. But that's kind of where they'd settled after Jesus was born. Maybe he can get back into whatever business he might have been doing or, you know, touch base with family. They thought, okay, we'll get back to Bethlehem. Everything will kind of smooth out. This will be fine. We can go back to normal, whatever that is. But when he, Joseph, heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So somewhere on this return trip home, two, three, four, five days, whatever it was, Joseph received word that Archelaus had replaced Herod as king over Judah, and it turns out he was just as bad, if not worse, than Herod. He was evil and mean. All the Jews hated him. Joseph had good reason to fear him. And I found this interesting. Joseph had made the decision not to go back there. After all he's been through now, all the dreams and all the warnings and all the fights from danger, 
all the obedience, the visits from the shepherds, the visits from the wise men. Joseph, I think, had a pretty good understanding now that there was something pretty special about this child. This was a pretty special, precious, precious child. I still don't think he got the whole immaculate conception thing. But there was something unique about this child. And after several years of faithful obedience to the Lord, it seems like Joseph's will is now more in line. He's more in tune with the will of God. Joseph knew that he should not return to Bethlehem. Then he had another dream which confirmed for him that he should not return to Bethlehem. So they went to Nazareth. Back to where this whole thing kind of started. And again, I kind of wonder how this played out in Joseph's mind as they're making this long, tedious trip. You know, was he still concerned about the small town chatter, what people might say, not just for himself and for Mary, but how, how would they accept the child? What would they say about this, this baby? Could he rebuild his business? Could he, could he work his way back into the community? Or, or might they be shunned socially, economically? I don't think this was an easy trip for, this, for them to make. But once again, Joseph dutifully obeyed. And once again, we're told this was done to fulfill prophecy that Jesus would be called the Nazarene. Now what's interesting, I mean, all of this I found interesting, but what's really interesting here is this is really the last we hear about Joseph. He's the father of Jesus. And that's really the only other reference to him. Is he's referred to as Joseph, the father of Jesus. This is the last we hear about him in the scripture. And the last thing we hear about him is he obeyed again. Now, I think you have to admit when you, when you work through this, again, we're used to just kind of reading the narrative and we skip over a lot of this stuff. This is really kind of an amazing story. We're not told for sure, but I think we can reasonably assume that Joseph was never really told the significance of any of these decisions he was being asked to make or being asked to obey. He wasn't told us he was making these difficult decisions. And, and I, I think that's the case because I think that's often how it works for us. The Lord has a plan for us. We have a part to play. And rarely, if ever, are we told how our part fits with all the other parts. That's what makes it a test of faith. We trust that the Lord knows what we don't. I mean, if we're told... You know, if an angel comes to us in a dream and says, okay, I need you to do A, thing A, and here's what's going to happen. After you do thing A, on Thursday at about 2, Jeff is going to do thing B, and then all of this is going to resolve so that by noon Friday, you're back in your lazy boy. It's going to be great. If we're told the ending from the beginning, then we wouldn't need faith. We wouldn't need to trust that the Lord is good. We wouldn't need to trust that the Lord is almighty and he knows the beginning from the end. And because he's God and we're not, he just calls us to trust and obey. Even when, especially when, we don't know why and we don't understand. But we believe that he is almighty God and he knows and he understands. This is what Joseph had to work through on several occasions. And again, without benefit of a resurrection, to build his faith on. We can base our faith on this historical, verifiable event. Jesus died. He rose from the dead. Time changed. 
how we mark time changed. This all makes it easier for us to believe. When the Bible says that Jesus died for our sins, we can believe it. He's, he raised from the dead. If he can do that, he can do everything else he said. So whatever Joseph's background was prior to his courtship with Mary, Joseph didn't have that to build his faith on. What he did have was the long history of what it meant to be an Israelite. He did have the long history of what it meant to be a Jew. He knew enough about their history and about the relationship between God and Israel that he understood enough about God that he had a foundation of faith based on past, past events, but looking forward. So when the angels came to him in a dream, he readily obeyed. And buried within those acts of obedience, there, there, there are really several different elements that Joseph had to deal with. The first is, Joseph shows us what trust and absolute obedience looks like. You remember with, uh, the, when we went through Genesis, there's the story of Abraham and Sarah. And there was a time or two where they had to have a little discussion about whether they were going to obey or not. We don't, we don't find that with Joseph. And there is nothing easy about what he's being asked to do. And I would guess at that point in his culture, they didn't have a thing like, so where do you see yourself in five years, Joseph? What is your 10-year plan? I don't think Joseph ever had to worry about that, but I would guess that his idea of the future didn't include any of this stuff. Boy, I really hope the Lord tests me on a regular basis. It really makes my life complicated. That's where I see myself in. And yet when he was tested, he was given the opportunity to grow in his faith. Even when it meant social and economic and personal hardship, Joseph trusted and obeyed. We also see that Mary accepted a potential death sentence by carrying the child, and then Joseph signed off on that. He joined in with her. She was an unwed but expectant woman, legally wed, but supposedly not yet physically wed, and that warranted a death sentence for her. She dishonored herself, her family, her husband. So this was literally a life and death decision for both of them. They both chose to obey and trust God and let him work out the details after that. This was clearly repeated, repeated acts of self-denial. Again, I don't think Joseph had a five-year plan plot, plotted out, but he probably had some idea of where he thought his life would go, how he was going to build his, his trade, build his business, how his reputation as a, as a skilled craftsman would would earn him standing and reputation in the community, how he wanted to enjoy just the simple pleasures of life, you know, a wife and a, a kid or two maybe. But when his plans and God's will butted up against each other, Joseph denied his own plans and obeyed the Lord's plan for his life. This is one we struggle with. It is not easy to trust that whatever the Lord's plan is, it's going to be better than our own. If he would only tell us what it is. He just doesn't often tell us what it is. Uh, again, that's why it's a test of faith. What are we willing to give up to obey? Finally, Joseph's life of faith enabled him to embrace, maybe not love, Maybe not enjoy, but 
embrace years of inconvenience. Not living the life he had chosen. Not living where he wanted to live, maybe. Not running his business the way he wanted to run it. I mean, he got to experience the joy of moving on several occasions. That was a bonus. And all this moving was in less than ideal circumstances. I mean, they almost lived an outlaw lifestyle for a while. They were hiding from the king. All of these events kind of stretched the meaning of inconvenient. But Joseph obeyed. Again, I just, I, I don't think the Lord had this all laid out for me. I don't think he delivered Joseph a map of, here's what your life's going to look like over the next five or six years. I don't know that he really knew or understood the implications of all that was being asked of him at the time. But if you read through the Matthew chapters 1 and 2, you read through these events in order, and you'll see that five different times it says, these things were done to fulfill prophecy. Joseph was just obeying the one thing he was asked to do. And then the next thing, and then the next thing. And the result was, he played a central part of the fulfillment of prophecy that resulted in the birth of the Messiah. So Joseph and Mary certainly, I think, were grieved by various trials along the way. They were wearied at times, perhaps, by the, the toil, the, the toll of relocating, tested as though by fire, having to flee from an evil king. And I think they still found a way to rejoice. They rejoiced. Maybe not every second. Maybe not every step. But they rejoiced. Not in all the things that they weren't told, but they were able to rejoice because of the two things they were told. That their child would be named Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. And that name literally means the Lord saves or Yahweh saves. And they were told he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So while the Lord didn't see fit to fill them in on all the details of the plan, he told them that much, and that was enough. They could rejoice in that. That's what enabled them to endure all the rest and rejoice in it, find some joy in it. Their temporary suffering and their hardship resulted in their and our salvation because they obeyed. Jesus would be born according to the scriptures, according to prophecy. He would go on to die for our sins in our place. And that's still true. His death still is for our sins. He died in our place. And even though he sits at the right hand of God the Father now, he left his spirit with us. So it's still true that God is with us. And we know all these stories. We just don't often take time to consider the details. But when we do, it's remarkable to consider what God has done. We can't even begin to imagine the, the myriad details that had to be worked out, all the, the lifelines that had to cross, all, all the paths that needed to be intersected for all of this to happen the way that it did. And in fulfillment of prophecies that were hundreds or thousands of years old. This is a staggering work of an almighty God who chose to use faithful, obedient followers to help bring it about. 
So we rejoice and we celebrate the birth of Jesus. But his birth really just scratches the surface of all that the Lord has done for us to bring us a Savior. Jesus came to die for our sins, to save us from our sins. And I would just encourage you, if you've not yet committed your life to Jesus, if you've not received his gift of salvation, Christmas seems like a pretty good time to receive that gift. I'm happy to talk with you after the service or, or sometime later, but I pray that we will all consider the amazing story of the birth of Jesus. And if you have claimed that gift, you got a week now to share that story with other people. Let's spread that gift around. This is the meaning of the holiday. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled and grateful to think that this has been your plan in place since before the world was created. You knew how all this is going to work out. Even now, you know how our, how our paths are going to cross and, and intersect with other people. You knew that we would sin against you. And yet you were not content to leave it at that. So you sent Jesus to die in our place, to, to create an opportunity for us to spend eternity with you. Lord, in that we rejoice. So I pray over this, this next week, this next month, even this next year. These have been a hard couple of years. But Lord, I pray that we continue to look to you and find reasons to rejoice. Lord, that we learn to look deeply and, and increasingly longingly at the, the hope that is set before us. the hope of eternity with you. But while we are here, Lord, I pray that you open our ears and our hearts and our minds to your will, to what you have laid out before us. You help us to, to have courage and, and be obedient when we're called to step out in ways that make us uncomfortable or uneasy. But we get better at stepping into these acts of faith and obedience that you call us to. Lord, and we're just grateful for your love for us and how all this has been done for us on our behalf. You are a great and gracious Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.